0: Following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing July 2, 2021. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration paid for by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabe Aki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territories of the Niighiwak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. This episode of the show was put together with 154 years separating us from the day four colonies came together and traditionally went by the name of Canada. The anniversary is usually celebrated with fireworks and citizens brightly colored in red and white. This year, with the discovery of more unmarked cemeteries on the residences of Indian residential schools, Even politicians are dialing down people's celebration plans, concerned about how celebrating the event would look to people across the land mourning a death count topping over 1,300 children dead on the authority of the institutions. So instead of a day of celebration, certain voices view it as a reflection time. Whatever good is associated with this country, we should also get a good view of the price that was paid particularly by the indigenous people here and the slaves brought to these shores from Africa, essentially rivers of bloodshed painting the portrait of the national tapestry. On this hour's show, we're going to make it a true reflection of key features of our existence, In the second half of our show, we will relate to Canada as building on a vast array of legal fictions, cultural concepts, religious fantasies, as well as literary escapism, which occludes the true horrors at the heart of the plunder at its core. Richard Sanders is back with more on these fictive narratives. But first, we will investigate the account of Canada as a sovereign country and explore whether or not critical mass of the Canadian dream has been traded away in the corporate takeover of more and more of the country's industrial core. My guest in the first half is the legendary economic thinker, Carrie Pollyani-Levitt. Carrie Pollyani-Levitt is Emeritus Professor of Economics from McGill University in Montreal, Canada, the daughter of the famous thinker Carl Pollyanni. she was born in Vienna, educated in England, where she attained her BSc in Economics and the FAR Medal in Statistics from the London School of Economics. After a period in trade union research in Toronto, she obtained an M.A. in Economics at the University of Toronto in 1959 and an appointment in the Department of Economics at McGill University in 1961. Her seminal book was Silent Surrender, The multinational corporation in Canada, a review of the rising foreign direct investment in Canada which began the erosion of Canadian sovereignty. It was intended as a position paper for the NDP, but the party rejected the issues related to foreign ownership. The Global Research News Hour had a unique opportunity to interview the woman, with Canada Day looming. Here is our conversation probing her thoughts on foreign policy, the coming election, and more.
1: Since you wrote that article 50 years ago to the present, there seems to have been more integration between our two countries,
2: right? There has been, yes.
1: Yeah. So, so I mean,
2: how,
1: I mean, is this something that you, I guess, you you may have foreseen way back when, or is this more of a, I uh, mean, from the time you wrote that book to to today, is is this pretty much the kind of result that uh, you would have expected?
2: Well, yes, yeah. I think <laughs> those those of us who were concerned about. The way in which Canadian business was selling themselves out to American multinationals, mm-hmm. we were concerned that it would lead to a, a loss of sovereignty, and I think it has. This has yeah. happened. We have less sovereignty than we had some time ago.
1: Mm. The uh, the growth since that time i mean we've had the 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 free trade agreements right uh, in 19 in the 1980s the the canada us free trade agreement the nafta and and we had military uh our our in militaries became more and more tightly uh connected yes. which 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 strengthened continentalism even further uh, we we're, we're all we're all of these separate decisions just added on to, to U.S. investment uh, to increase U.S. control of Canada, or was it part of the same pattern? First, first you increase investment, then you yes, try more and more more integration between. It,
2: yes, part of the same pattern.
1: Mhm. Yeah. So, 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 are you saying that? Uh, what I'm asking is, how far back had the various stages of integration been planned? Is it like kind of like a, a timeline where you say, "Well, now this, one, then, then we're going to throw in a free trade agreement when the time is ripe," or, or did these uh, did this idea of free trade and and other uh, aspects of integration just sort of come along when when the time was
2: ripe? Well, um, <coughs> these. Free trade agreements of the kind we're talking about were
3: a a global phenomenon.
2: (laughs) They were not Mm -hmm. specific to Canada. Mm -hmm. But we had what they like to call globalization, which really, really meant the,
3: um, the the power of international capital
2: particularly financial capital mm. and yeah it, what I would like to talk about that as we are approaching Canada Day and many people are questioning whether they should celebrate or rather concern themselves about the phenomenon of the residential schools and the young people in the unmarked graves.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: I like uh, to talk about the present. Mm-hmm. and What well, has happened since I wrote that book? I yeah. Think it, it is an important book, and it remains important.
1: Hmm. Well. For certain, I mean, in in 2021, um, we are recognizing now the the the, the residential schools have uh, definitely had a, a it has been a horrific part of our past. But I mean, have we really come to the point where you know is something special happening now, or are we just seeing our whole are we just finding a way of shifting our our dependence on the residential schools to something else because it seems as if you know for all of the the the, the everything that the prime minister is saying the indigenous peoples are still being subjected to uh you know uh you know brutal things like higher than average uh Representation in the in the in the jails, for example, and and so on. what, what is your take on that?
2: Yes. Well, <coughs> the fact is that the way that this country was built, it was built by my people who who saw the indigenous people in a very negative way. And the residential schools would never have happened if it were not part of the culture of this country. And I think many people are saying that this is regrettable and bad. And that something should be done to improve the relationship between the settler communities. That constitute the Canadian population and the indigenous peoples.
1: Yeah. Do you? Does the signs show that that the we are going to be going in that direction?
2: I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. There are obviously an increasing number of Canadians who are only now learning about this, and they are concerned. But, mm-hmm. I, to tell you the truth, when, when you called me about discussing foreign policy, I thought that's what we were going to do. And what I think is that Canada in many ways has a good name in the world. But we are not acting on our own initiative. We are following In, in the wake of the United States in foreign policy.
1: hmm Yeah.
2: And I think that this is a very dangerous situation because among what I consider the existential challenges facing humanity. One of them is how to
3: prevent
2: ourselves from engaging in mutual destruction by the use of atomic weapons. And because we are a party to NATO, Canada is not following an independent foreign policy, but is only going along with whatever is the current um, concern of the United States. I would like us to exert our independence And that is one of the advantages of having nations.
1: So the, the military uh, is, there's no clear division between the militaries, um, but how, can you see the, the nation uh, in any way? I mean, are we so united that 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 we can't break loose even if we wanted to um i mean when when it comes to uh votes at the un on on uh, the on the, the the uh nuclear uh missiles or uh you anything like that i mean do we even have the power anymore to stand up against the united states
2: um well We have as much or as little as we ever had before. We don't have less. Although the scandal of the residential schools is is a negative, it reduces the legitimacy, legitimacy with which Canada can um plays a role on the international scale, uh, stage. It, hmm. it, it, it's a blot on our record. Hmm. And for all kinds of good reasons, something has to be done. Hmm. Yeah. But what I am thinking about is more what could Canada do as a medium, medium power in the world, with a good reputation and a historic commitment to the United Nations. and i think that we should examine what has been our foreign policy
1: is there a particular foreign policy where we could start expressing our uh, our independence Uh, way of thinking, uh, that that we could distance ourselves from the United States, you know? Well, I think
2: the obvious one is the field of diplomacy. I mean, Mm. we, we have, we had developed a lot of independent economic and political relations with China, which is the up-and-coming power in the next century.
1: What about uh, in terms of military policy, like getting out of any uh, relationship with the United States on, uh, you know, shooting down missiles, or uh, I guess I'm think well, basically the what NORAD does um you know that that's is that something we could even break out of
2: well maybe so but i think more to the point we should develop our independent relations with other countries what is clear is that in the in the coming world the we have to have a um what they call it again a world order that is multinational in other words there are a number of Legitimate political entities in this world who who have to be included in a multipolar world, and that multipolar world would include China and the United States and Canada. But we should be included, not as a satellite to the United States, but on on our own independence. And I think we we we, the government of Canada, made a big mistake in acceding to this demand by the Americans to arrest the and the, the, the lady representing their very important in, um, in IT company. Mm. So that was a, because what she was accused of was a violation of US sanctions against Iran. And this is not a criminal act in Canadian law, because Canada did not agree to sanctions against Iran. So that was a a big big mistake, and it was done entirely because our government felt under some compulsion to act in the way it it did. But it was a compulsion to to play a subsidiary role regarding relations with the US. And we have done huge damage to Canada's relationship with China. And there are individuals, now Canadian individuals, in China who are paying the price for this.
1: I know that uh, there's an election coming up possibly this fall. I'm wondering if your views on uh, Canada's need to distinguish itself can possibly play any role in this election and and who would you be more inclined to vote towards?
2: I don't know. Yeah. I I don't
1: Yeah.
2: I, I don't yeah, know I, who I'm going. I know I will not, not vote for the Conservatives. I do not trust them. Yeah. So I don't know yet who I will vote for.
1: You're sure. Yeah.
2: But, but what I would like to see the government of Canada do is to take some initiative in the matter of banning new nuclear weapons
1: mm-hmm.
2: and there was a motion introduced in the general Assembly of the u n mm-hmm. some months ago to that effect, and Canada simply did not express his opinion in okay. favor of, of what is clearly the popular view of the majority of member states of the UN
1: Yeah, uh, Carrie Polanyi-Levitt, I, I really appreciate uh, everything you've had to say today, uh, and I know we're kind of getting at the end of our time, but I mean, I, I just wanted to offer you the opportunity to close with, with any any thoughts that, that you have that maybe uh, uh, you should, you know, we as, as Canadians uh, can be more alert to as we move forward to, toward and beyond the next election.
2: Well, I think that Canada should reconsider its membership of the of NATO because that is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization and. It is a military alliance and in recent years it has been involved in military conflicts in the regions of the Middle East having really nothing to do with the North Atlantic. And I don't think That I think we have to, we should reconsider. And the reason why it might be difficult for the Canadian government to take a position against nuclear weapons is precisely because um, our military is so closely integrated with the U.S. And the U.S. would never, never agree to that position. I think I would just leave it there.
1: Okay, uh, Professor Pollyani levitt I, I, I think we we've uh, come to the end. And I wanted to know how. F- I feel extremely privileged to have this conversation with you, and and I wish you all the best in in your coming years.
2: Well, that is very kind of you, thank you.
1: Okay.
2: And, and I uh, really, I like the work that Global Research is doing. I disagree with them about some things about global warming, but that's a, a minor disagreement, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank so you very much. Saying, oh. in, in, in order, as a Canadian, I can again feel proud of the, to be a national of this country. Our government has to take some action, whether it is in the area of international diplomacy or some other area because i do not feel comfortable to be only ashamed of the government of canada for what they have done with the relationship with the indigenous people i would like to feel good about the country which has a lot of a lot of good things going for it
1: Yeah, yes, that, that's a, a good way to close uh, going into Canada Day. <laughs> so that's okay. Uh, okay. Well, you take care. And, and again, thank you so
0: much for this interview. Thank you. That was Carrie Polanyi Levitt speaking from her home in Montreal on June 29th. Professor Polanyi Levitt is Emeritus Professor of Economics from McGill University. She spoke to us two weeks after turning 98 years old. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a show dedicated to research on globalization and produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other Canadian community radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. As we spelled out on the show, we produced 2 weeks ago Related to residential schools, certain fictions were told that allowed us to build majesty and excitement around a venture that realistically constitute the massacre of thousands of Indigenous children representing a genocide. This week, we're going to take the concept further and exploring the travesties committed against human beings in the name of the peaceful kingdom that was Canada. Pulling us through this drama once again is Richard Sanders. He graduated with an M.A. in Cultural Anthropology from the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario before campaigning in peace and anti-war. He founded COAT, the coalition opposed to the arms trade, and started the publication Press for Conversion in 1989. His 2017 topic is called Fictive Canada, Indigenous Slaves, and the captivating narratives of a mythic nation. We saw residential schools as a good thing rather than a, as a guilty crime that we don't want to think about and are going to sweep it under the rug. But we also have the, the fictional depictions of Canada as a peacemaker. You know, we, we like to think of ourselves as benevolent. Is this pretty much what Get guided you to embracing the subject of, of Canada as a, as a myth, itse- itself as a myth?
3: Yeah, like uh, for many years as a peace activist, uh, you know, I guess about like since the early 80s, you know, I've been working at this. And uh, over the decades, I've c- confronted and tried to debunk a whole variety of different myths that. That the Canadian public has uh, misunderstandings and just the official narratives about various different uh, Canadian foreign policies, domestic policies, and there's a whole slew of myths that you know peace activists come up against in our in our work in our work to try to educate the public about what the Canadian government is doing. It's really hard, for example, to uh, to get the public to oppose a war if the public thinks that we're not involved in the war, like for the the case with the war against Iraq in 2003. The Liberals said, oh, we said no to the war. We said no to taking part in the war. We're not involved. And everybody applauded. And the Liberals got all sorts of kudos and great support. And everybody thought this was wonderful. And everybody was so proud of Canada for not being involved in the war. Well, we were very deeply involved in the war. Canada was totally complicit in the war. We did almost everything possible uh, except declare that we were involved in the war in fact we declared that we were involved in the war so the myths can be one of the biggest uh obstacles to getting people involved another another example that happened the, the next year in 2004 was canada declared we said no to ballistic missile defense well you know I, just like with the war on iraq i spent years writing writing articles, exposing all the different ways that Canada was involved in the war in Iraq. And I did the same thing with ballistic missile defense and other forms of missile defense weapon systems uh, that Canada was deeply involved. It is deeply involved. Uh, you know, that was years ago that I, I wrote that. But I mean, even now uh, this myth keeps coming up and it's the, it's not just the government that spreads these, these these lies. I call them lies, but in reality, if you believe something and that's the case with most propagandists they actually believe the lie so it's not a lie because they're not lying because they actually believe what they're saying anyway so the same thing happened with ballistic missile defense it's the mainstream peace groups and all sorts of progressive groups development agencies and human rights organizations they all spread the lie because they read read it in the newspapers and they they listen to they hear it from the the government so they think it's true and then they spread it. And then it because the peace movement and progressive groups are spreading the, this deception, then it becomes even more widespread because the public is skeptical when they hear something from the government or from a corporation. You know, let's say, well, you know, I don't know whether I really believe that. But if they hear it from Oxfam or, you know, some large uh, development group or human rights group or peace group then they're going to go well you know if they're saying it it must be true you know they'll just assume that it must be true because these are good progressive people or the ndp or whatever you know uh and you know all these different organizations and, and progressive political parties actually fall for the official narratives in many cases uh that are mainstream fictions so after so just to get just to finish up this thought so for decades i was fighting these different myths And then about five years ago, I was studying about uh, indigenous slavery and the the slave trade in Canada, which was mostly with indigenous people, not with with uh, African origin people. Um, Anyway, I was investigating, you know, all these different cases over 500 years of of indigenous slavery. And I realized in the course of that, that, of course, the obvious truth is that the biggest myth of all is canada itself canada is a myth canada is a lie canada is a, de- is a deception uh you know it just it's it looks good on paper uh, you know we have the passports we have the stamps we have the 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 money we have all sorts of legal uh, paraphernalia the uh, uh the paperwork is all is all there and everybody calls themselves a canadian we pay taxes as if we're you know, a country, <laughs> but it's all a big—it's all a big fiction, uh, and it's—it's it's, so it's a, it's an interesting—the uh, concept of a legal fiction is quite interesting. I, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, what legal fictions are. But, uh...
0: Well, you know, may maybe we could take that uh, like a little bit in in stride. Uh, uh, I want to going back to your article, your your. Uh, Issue uh, in 2017, where you spelled all this out, I have a quote uh, which he reads Many corrections are still needed to rid Canada of the structural violence and systemic racism that has evolved here over the past five centuries. One step in this process is to revise our understanding of history and to do away with national creation myths that portray Cartier and Cabot as heroic founders of Canada. We should instead acknowledge them as the official founding criminals of this fictive narrative nation, which has been built on a captivating web of myths that continue to deceive.
3: Who said that? That's brilliant. Well, I don't know. It it wasn't cool. Maybe it was you. that was me. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But uh, maybe maybe talk about these two men, you know, and, and their respective, uh, the, the quirks to their uh, backgrounds that haven't made it to popular awareness.
3: Yeah, well, um, Cabot is the, that's the way people usually say it, John Cabot. He was the, um, the British uh, representative. He was, you know, people call these these criminals they call them explorers you know that's often the word that's that's used to that's a that's a that's a myth there too uh, explorers they're not explorers this guy had a contract from the king to conquer and to take control of whatever cities or resources or people or anything that he could find he would bring it back the king would get a percent of the profit And Cabot would get a percent of the profit. I mean, it was the same with Columbus and these other explorers. They were just really businessmen who uh, were also, uh, you know, they ran uh, companies that uh, were bankrolled by, uh, by criminal corporations at the time. And they were out there to conquer and to uh, convert and, take control and make whatever money they could and they were looking for slaves they were looking for spices they they, they found fish and they found a lot of trees and they found uh, you know uh, all sorts of things that they could uh, take control of but I mean he had a license to conquer from Henry Seventh, who was the last Catholic king he also Cabot and the other explorers also had the support of the the uh, Catholic church uh, Henry the Seventh was a Catholic. Henry VIII, of course, uh, you know, he changed religions. But um, so the the point is, they they came here, and the legal fiction was, I mean, anybody can can go out and take a flag and stick it in the ground, and take a big cross and and plant it in the ground, and then. Have some magical incantations that they that that they cast out, you know, into the to the world from their mouths, the sort of magical uh, words that they utter, and they send forth into the universe and take claim of the land. But it's just it's bogus. It's just totally bogus. There's I other people them. already there. it's our territory. Like it's our territory
0: <laughs> yeah, <though. laughs>
3: and um, the the I guess the major legal fiction was is. Uh, wrapped up in what's called crown land. So, and it it actually, before before Cabot, this idea of crown land was a legal fiction in England, uh, where all of the the land was transferred by the courts. It became uh, uh, accepted, an accepted truth, even though they, they knew it wasn't true, but they accepted the truth that all this land belonged to the king, and that the king had been there before, and that he had prior ownership uh, of all the land, and that he had gr- then granted the land to the, to these people, uh, who, who uh, supposedly came after him. But if, in this case of Canada, for, for example, I don't know when the first monarch ever came across the ocean, but it, they certainly weren't here before Uh, cabin you know there there was no I don't I was probably not until the 1800s or maybe the 1900s that a British monarch even came to Canada so how it could be crown land you know and they said that it was uninhabited or that these people weren't really humans or whatever so it's all tied up in, in imperialism and in racism and the need to, to steal and plunder, and uh, it's just uh, one crime after another, massive crimes, and how do you cover them up? You cover you, them up with... with. Uh,
0: there was a lot of slavery, and they were involved in the, the abduction of, of Indigenous people for slavery, right?
3: Uh, yeah, like uh, they abducted, uh, kidnapped, and brought back to, uh, to Europe uh, Indigenous people, Part of the purpose of that was so that when they returned a few years later, they'd have people that could speak, could be translators for them. And also that they could use these people as, uh, as to, to, to help them to convert the heathens, the savages into Christianity, because that was a, a major purpose as well as just making money. They also wanted to convert heathens and uh, and so-called savages to become civilized and Christian Christianized, and this also this made money for the for the churches. Uh.
0: Yeah, that's where the, that's where you get the whole narrative of the residential schools, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Well, the residential schools, of course, yes, they uh, they involved slavery as well. So the first phase of slavery in Canadian uh, history was this phase where these so-called explorers would come over and then they would kidnap people, bring them back to Europe and then return with them a year or two, whatever, years later. And then, uh, as I was describing earlier, uh, they become part of the uh, process of conversion and, and conquering the new lands. But the, the next phase was a, cha- a phase of chattel slavery where they're bought and sold. And the, the the fur trade, which is really romanticized in Canadian history was actually intricately, uh, was, it was tied with the slave trade. So um, the two trades were really part and parcel of the same economic system. It was this, the slave trade and the fur trade were really uh, closely tied and um, then after the uh, the period of chattel slavery, where you can just buy and sell people, um, then there was a period where right after slavery was banned that, uh, that uh, slavery became institutionalized through the residential school. So all of the residential school students had to work. Uh, usually half the time was spent working. Half the time was spent being brainwashed into the religion, uh, and the other half of the time was spent working and making money uh, for their masters, and so it was child slavery, and it came at just the perfect moment, just when slavery was was abolished by the British Empire.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm you. You mentioned uh, a, a couple of figures uh, sprung out: Henry Miles, and Stephen Leacock. Uh, they they were prominent writers, you know, uh, famous actually, and, and they helped forge narratives. But their work was lacing with racism all over the place. You know, can, can you talk about how those myths or these writers, who whose face had never, you know, appeared on the scene, that was sculpting the the overall uh, fictive pattern that uh, is establishing the myth of Canada.
3: Yeah, Stephen Leacock is uh, famous, of course, for being a humorist. Uh, he uh, he's most famous for that, and and I used to really admire his his funny book stories, and and I still do. I think they're 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 good. They're good funny stories, but he was also an extreme racist, and he also wrote history books. And yeah, I looked at uh, that. Was another thing I did was look at the history books and how. Historical narratives about Canada have evolved over the over the last couple hundred years over and um, And it like I just just see a quote here from Stephen Leacock, for example. uh, These rude peoples he's talking about uh, Aboriginal First Nations indigenous people. These rude peoples were so backward and so little trained in using their faculties that any advance towards art and industry was inevitably slow and difficult. Uh, You know, like, um, so yeah, there's a number of different ways that Canadians have been influenced into, into having these myths uh, about ourselves and to identify ourselves as being uh, Canadians, as well as identify as ourselves, as you were saying earlier, as being this wonderful members of a wonderful peace loving peacekeeping nation you know that is kind of a beacon of truth and honor and justice and democracy and human rights and all these wonderful things and we're going out in the world and spreading all this great stuff to other people around the world just like we did when we came to north america Uh, the british people and the french people came here and spread our wonderfulness by setting up residential schools and committing genocide and stealing and plundering and conquering. That was part of how wonderful we were, uh, but it's all covered up with this mythology. So there's a number of different ways that they do it.
0: Anything uniquely Canadian about these myths? I mean, are, are they not? Are they different from uh, the, the myths in, say, in the United States who are doing basically the same level of plunder and, and so on?
3: Yeah, oh, they're very similar to the United States. It's almost identical to the United States. Uh, there are a few different countries that are, have... Very similar national uh, identity myths: uh, the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, and uh, Israel is another one, which is quite similar. Um, other other nations have their own uh, kinds of identity myths, uh, national mythologies about themselves, how they see themselves in the world, um, and there, you know, every nation has myths about itself. Um, and they all i guess the thing in, that they might all have in common is that they all see themselves in a more positive light than they really should be seen or that or that more positive way than other people might see them especially their victims um, but the certain countries the ones that i mentioned australia canada us in particular we do have all have a similar sort of a history because we we were you know there were a lot of uh Anglo-Saxons who went out uh by ship and took over huge lands and um then took control conquered uh stole the land and stole the wealth and resources and uh, enslaved people and that sort of thing so there's a similar history and so we've we've and we have had a sim we had um uh, an overlap in the, in the, the, the mother country, uh, mother countries, uh, so uh, in Europe. And so they, they have similar, um, similar mythologies, but th- th- there's a number of different. Um, like, here's a quote from myself again. <laughs> Canada is built on a vast foundation of legal fictions, cultural constructs, religious fantasies, political fabrications and literary escapism so the, people are being hit at so many different levels by these mythologies they're getting it from the religion from their politicians from their corporations from their history books from uh, you know getting getting the, this, this similar pattern of mythology coming at them from all directions and so it's really understandable that people would fall victim to believing this and one of the things that i i kind of had fun with in a way with when i produced that issue on fictive canada was was playing with the idea of how fictions how myths captivate people how they enslave people because people are held uh with under the control of their myths you know they're 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 kept enclosed within a a a fixed set of beliefs ideologies their belief system is is tightly controlled by the by the myth and so in a way they're slaves to the myth they're captivated they're held captive by the myth and so the the title of the magazine was uh fictive canada indigenous slaves and the captivating narratives of a mythic nation so um yeah i think that we're 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 To escape and to escape from the fetters or shackles of a myth is just about as difficult as escaping from a prison, from a physical prison where you're held and, you know, behind bars.
0: These fictional narratives, I mean, we're essentially being propagandized, okay? I'm wondering if there isn't some aspect of one of these myths that is so infective that even today we are spellbound by it but we don't realize it
3: well as i said earlier i i think the biggest myth the most powerful one the one that's the most difficult to escape from uh is the whole myth of the existence of canada as a as a as, a, as an entity uh you know like as a thing as a real thing canada is not a real thing i mean De facto it is on the ground, it, it has a lot of power you know uh, and it, it you know it has all the paperwork in order. But in reality, is it like, how true, how honest, how real is this country? If it was stolen, if the land was just plundered, if the whole thing is based on a lie, it's based on religious lies, political lies, economic lies, and it's based on all these different myths. How real is the country? And this sounds like kind of an, an, a bit, uh, almost insane for someone to suggest that Canada doesn't exist. Um, but I think in a in very real way, Canada does not exist. We And it's only exists Because of all the confidence, it's a, I like, I really like the metaphor of a confidence scheme, confidence uh, tricks, con artistry, uh, institutionalized, like we think of con artists as individuals who go out and they scam people, it's all based on trust. You know, you trust that whatever they're trying to sell you is, is real, and, and so you give over your trust to this, to this person, and then they rip you off because uh, you're you're weak and you have some money and they want it and they, so they use lies and deceptions and trickery to get it from. You. you just hand it over to them because you trust them. Well, how different is that from this whole huge institutionalized structure that we've got here? They come over here, the Europeans come over here disguised as uh, explorers. They plant their cross in the ground. They've got a boatload of, of people of this is actually true. They would release prisoners, certain kinds of thugs from prison in Europe, and they would be the the main guys that would come over on the ships with uh, Cartier and Cabot. They were like uh, thieves and murderers. These were the guys that they relied on to come over here. This was a criminal operation. And so the country is based on this on on those foundations. So And it's based on legal fictions where, and a legal fiction, just to be clear, it's a very fascinating topic, but I just wanna give you the the definition, the shorthand version of what it is. So a legal fiction is something that's not true, but the courts, the judge, the different lawyers, the people involved in the court, all agree that they're gonna pretend that it's true. So they're gonna say, although we know this isn't true, We're going to pretend it's true for the purposes of making the legal system work properly and go smoothly and everything. We're going to just just, we're just going to say that such and such is the truth.
0: That that would be fascinating that just that issue and and how it came about would be a fascinating topic for the show. But uh, I I want to talk. I mean, going back to your uh, initial points about ballistic missile defense uh, and and about you know, the 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 war on Iraq, where you know Canadians said no, as far as, and 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 the Liberal government and the media said the same thing. Although uh, you said based on research that the government said yes, and and uh, also the same thing with the the war in Iraq, where uh, Canada was, you know, Canada said they're not going to join, but they actually they they did in in a, in a way, and, and so uh, the whole idea, yeah, so you you talk about the practice of saying no saying no letting people believe we said no when we actually said yes cuz I mean, come to think of it i i can think of very few instances on the international stage especially now where we actually do say yes i mean we say no but we actually mean yes so, so how i mean how, how can we that how can the myth of canada be advanced by that uh, two-sided no argument
3: well it's that's a very uh, good question (laughs) i wish i knew a, a good answer for that the case of iraq um that you mentioned uh uh you know there was a thing that they that the americans called the coalition of the willing so they created a coalition of countries of governments that were going to that signed this declaration that they were part of the coalition of the willing. Well, Canada never signed it because Canada was pretending that it wasn't involved. And we didn't have that many troops on the ground, but we had thousands of, of uh, military personnel in ships in the Persian Gulf that were escorting American uh, uh, warships with planes on them to do that shock and awe bombardment uh, of Iraq that killed so many people. We were, we were the canadian ship was uh was at the forefront of that fleet uh you know and that's only just one example we had three different generals leading the international forces in iraq three canadian generals we we let them come and land in our country Uh, you know the americans landed their planes here and then flew off to iraq and they landed here and and they refueled here and so we're letting the bully go through our through our backyard to get to the where it's committing the crime and then it goes to do the crime then it comes back through our property again that's another that's another small but one of the main maybe 20 or 25 different ways that canada was complicit in the in the war on iraq but even the even the peace movement and uh, anti war groups were going along with the myth and still are like uh, i'm sure if you did it did some research into uh, looking at what they're saying now about like sometimes it's an organization wants to you know they're it's part of the institutionalized process of, of, an, of an NGO you know they they need to raise money and they often get money from the Canadian government too which uh, you know the government can pick and choose who it gives money to so it's not going to give money to somebody who's saying it's all a myth don't believe it it's all the government's all lying they're they're actually involved in the war well they're not going to go give money to that that group, and not that that group would want to take the money, but uh, but they also need to raise money from the public. So they need to look as if they've done stuff, so that they can say, "Oh, look, we influenced the government. We we urged them to not be involved in the war, and then they said no to the war." Hey, aren't we aren't we uh, great? You should send us uh, some money. Um, well, the truth is they were involved in the war and you're spreading the, the myth that, they're, that they weren't involved. So are you really helping the peace movement? Because we can't get people to come out to a protest if they think that, that Canada's not involved in the war. Anyway, so I don't know. Thanks, Michael.
0: I guess, anyway, uh, I yeah, I guess uh, Canada is a rival to the United States the way the good cop is a rival to the bad cop, you know, but they still have a joint mission there. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Take care. That was Richard Sanders of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and editor of Press for Conversion magazine with his thoughts about the fictional narratives of Canada. That's our show for this week. Please tune into the show next week for a special four-part interview with the acclaimed researcher into the political assassinations of the 1960s, James DiEugenio. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Centre for Research on Globalisation and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on Occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nehiwak and the Nakota. The show airs on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. Music for this week's broadcast is Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music accessible on the site purple-planet.com. To leave feedback on our show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.